the Crude Audacity Podcast. Ben Scott, welcome to the Crude Audacity Podcast. Good morning. Pleased <laughs> to be here. Thank you so much for joining. I am so thrilled to get your perspective because you bring an international perspective to the platform. Really, most of the time we get caught up in the lower 48 and everything that's happening here, but we don't really think about how oil here affects oil there. Furthermore, you are a reservoir engineer and your big claim to fame is development, which is something that's a questionable activity for the transfer of skill sets. Before we jump all into it, how did you get started? Give us all the details. Why oil and gas? What was oil and gas like over across the pond? And really, why reservoir? Okay, so I um, did maths, physics, and chemistry uh, for my A-level exams. In the UK, that's the exams you take when you're 18 years old. Had a range of opportunities to look at for my university education. Um, ended up choosing chemical engineering. It looked like the most interesting to me because I really liked chemistry, well, I would say that was my favorite subject out mm -hmm. of the chemistry, maths, and physics. And chemical engineers were also rumored to be paid more than some of the other engineering disciplines like mechanical or, or civil, aeronautical. So I was... I've heard uh, that as well. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, so I was also drawn to the, the side of it that I wanted to be better paid when I graduated. So oh, so you chased the money. <laughs> I did. I did. So the next stage was uh, applying for universities. So I was a, a straight-A student out of school, which gave me the opportunity to actually um, well, apply for an, an Ivy League education in the in the UK. Ooh. So I applied to Cambridge University, um, got accepted, um, and studied for four years there and, uh, and got my master's. How did you start in oil? What was your first job? How did you get into your first job? I mean, so, it, it's a little difficult over here these days. So yeah, this is back in 97. The job market, I wouldn't say it was booming, but there were jobs available. Um, but I got into oil and gas from a chemical engineering degree, again, because I was kind of chasing the money. When yeah. I started to look around, even though my degree was more suited to downstream positions, um, so jobs in refineries, things like that. Um, Which is where most chemical engineers end up going. You correct. don't see them hitting upstream very often. Correct. Um, but there was actually, it was actually a friend of my father's. He was uh, one of the directors at Amarada Hess in London. And... I just uh, went out for a beer with him one Sunday lunchtime, and uh, he gave me a, an overview of the oil and gas business, his perspective, his journey through it. It sounded exciting. As I said, they were paying more than the downstream jobs. And the other part of it that attracted me being in the UK was the uh, the prospect of international travel with the job. Yeah. So I was young, early 20s. At that time, you know, travel was fun and something that I, I really wanted to do. So I didn't have a family at that stage. I was single. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I wanted to get out there and see the world while I was working. What was your first job? So yeah, I was part of the Amarada Hess uh, graduate intake in London. And I was taken on, well, signed a mentor there, but essentially it was a development petroleum engineering okay. um, position. Um, so it was a small team in London that were responsible for looking at prospects in the, in the UK North Sea. Ooh, um, the North Sea. What was that like? It was, it was a good place to get started, but Amarada Hess was an interesting one 
to work for first. Obviously, they were a mid-sized independent rather than a major, so they didn't have an awful lot of structured training. That's a plague, yes. Yeah. (laughs) So it was essentially learning on the job with a few external vendor-based courses. But the main way I actually got taught was by being sent up to Aberdeen on a on an assignment for a couple of years. So I wasn't in London for that long. I spent a little bit of time down there and got exposed to some some basics of what um, uh, development petroleum slash reservoir engineers do. But the main way that HES wanted to train their graduates was by um, essentially getting them up into the operations groups. Uh, which Hands-on based on out training. Of Hands-on training. Yeah. And that involved not only office-based work, evaluations, planning jobs, evaluating data, but also going offshore onto the rigs. Um, so I got exposed to that very early on. Learned a lot. Got to see um, well test operations, witnessing well tests, logging operations, log witnessing, drilling and coring, mud logging, you know. You saw it all from the ground up. I saw it all. Did you have to work at all? You didn't just look at the data. You were actually hands-on. I was, uh, yeah, I was hands-on. I was, um, of course, I had a, a... a more senior member of staff with me, but I was expected to pull my weight and, exactly. and look at the data and learn that way. Do um, they haze over there? A little, yeah, especially with the uh, the whole how many hours of sleep have you had today? <laughs> and you know, I always enjoy those stories: the air sampling, the spark test. I mean, it just cracks me up. <laughs> the, 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 yeah, the uh, the nickname people would get on the rig if they had more than about three or four hours of sleep is they would be nicknamed the Prince of Darkness, you know, because oh, yeah. nobody was seeing them. So Night yeah, you, you you were expected to be up and available most of the time during a 24-hour period whenever stuff was going on that you yeah. could learn from because you were out there to learn. It was great to to see how that side of the industry worked and it was it was uh, it kind of set me up to be a reservoir engineer in a lot of ways because I saw where the data comes from and more importantly the the uncertainty that's associated with it. So when you have a, an appreciation if you like for how the data is being acquired you get a good feel for how reliable that data might be. Exactly. And then how best to use it to inform business decisions. I completely agree. So yeah. Hess, Exxon, BP, these are some major names. I see you've been having a peek at my CV there. <laughs> <laughs> of course I have. <laughs> yeah, 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 I'll continue on with the story. I got that taste of offshore, learned some stuff, um, but it was actually a Christmas day I spent offshore in 1998, I believe, that was a real turning point for me where I kind of realized that the offshore life was not really for me and I was going to be more suited to onshore field studies. Really. Okay. Um, so that's sort of what started gravitating you towards reservoir, the yeah, data side of the equation. Correct. Yeah. So yeah, I would be offshore acquiring the well test data, but where I really came into my own and felt most comfortable was back in the office, analyzing the data and interpreting it. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I was a couple of years up in Aberdeen, came back down to London, and that's when I started really developing those skills and becoming a reservoir engineer. Okay. Was there any unique training that started happening in terms of reservoir as you started picking your discipline within the field? We tend to just fall into roles here. We don't necessarily get the specific training in any formal manner. When you look at the uh, the range of stuff I was exposed to offshore activities-wise and then the uh, experience I had coming back into the office and interpreting log data, interpreting well tests, evaluating well performance, that was a platform from which you could go a number of different ways. But 
I was also interested, at, I was getting interested at this time in simulation modeling. Had an opportunity to build and, and uh, calibrate my first simulation model. What tool um, were you using? I was using Eclipse in those days. Of course days. y'all were. <laughs> in, in those days it was um, uh, run on a Unix workstation. Okay. Um, all text format. Very basic compared to you know how we, uh, how we simulate today. It was by going through that exercise I think that I found my passion for modeling really. I realized yeah. that this was something that I was well suited for. I had the patience for it. I had the analytical mind. And as I said, I'd, I'd kind of, the, the offshore experience had worn a little thin and I liked the way that simulation engineers generally got to do their work from the office on the whole nice parts of the world. So yeah, yeah it, it was coming together for me. I, 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 this is probably now coming to close to five years at Amrata Hess. I tried a whole bunch of different things and I was beginning to find areas of sort of petroleum and reservoir engineering that were right for me. Mm -hmm. So we're now 2002. ExxonMobil have um, just merged. And okay. a guy comes and, and moves in uh, next to me at uh, Amrata Hess in London. He was Heritage Mobile. Didn't like the, the new... Uh, more Exxon-based culture at ExxonMobil in London. I love that you um, called it Heritage Mobile. That's that, that's how these guys uh, referred to themselves back <laughs> in, the, in, in the early 2000s. Legacy. <laughs> yeah, the, the legacy guys. And uh, anyway, he gave me a contact uh, at ExxonMobil in London, his old boss, and I emailed my CV into him, and the rest was history. I, I left Hess probably within a month of that happening. Mm -hmm. um, got offered a, a, a new position there as a, a as a reservoir engineer. Happens. So it was win win. And, I, and so this is kind of, I'm, I was kind of doing it in reverse to how a lot of people do it. A lot of people do the major first and yeah. then go in, independent because of my father's contact with the director in in, uh, in London for Amarada Hess. I kind of did it the other way around. But do you feel like you got exposed to more because of that? Because you were asked I to do. wear more hats. I do. So um, as you know, I. I at ExxonMobil, I was uh, mentoring uh, younger graduates when they were coming through the ExxonMobil program. And one of the things I noticed is um, they weren't getting exposed to operations. They weren't they getting were exposed to technical anything. Well, they were getting a lot of technical classes um, down at the uh, URC, the, the Upstream Research Company. Okay. Um, well, that's uh, good to know because that doesn't necessarily happen these no, days. These days, yeah. Well, um, yeah, the, the graduates of this time, so I'm talking you know, 2002 through to... Ooh, yeah, all the way through to 2010 when, when I was heavily involved with, with mentoring the younger staff there at, at, at uh, ExxonMobil. Um, it, they'd get their structured training at the, at the lab and then, um, then the rest of it was, was on the job. But what I did notice that um, they weren't getting is that operational um, uh, flavor of you know, witnessing well tests, seeing mm -hmm. logging operations, uh, drilling, coring, all the stuff I'd gotten to see. Yeah. Um, so I was grateful that I'd kind of come in having done that first because then, of course, I, I still got all the benefit of yeah. uh, the ExxonMobil experience. Um, mm -hmm. But I'd done some operational stuff first. So I had more of an appreciation for where the data was coming from that we were looking at. Exactly. It gave you the edge for that art of interpretation. You knew when data in and data out were not lining up, even though the computer yeah. might make it look pretty. That's right. Yeah. Agreed. How was mentoring? What kind of programs were they going through? What kind of things were you training in order to turn technical staff into truly technical staff? So it was more. T so it was. It was taking the younger guys that were fresh out of university and were working the big projects. This was in ExxonMobil Development Company. Mm -hmm. It's just just one experience of, of, of the mentoring, and you're essentially teaching these guys how to do it because there's not a there's not a textbook or a, or even a training program that actually 
teaches the steps that you go through to calibrate models and use them for development planning purposes. Oh, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's so kind it's, of a it's, really, it's theoretical oil field. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's an application of the skills that you'll learn from textbooks or classes. Mm -hmm. There's an art to it that can't be taught, um, and that comes through experience. Um, that, and that's a very re rewarding part of the job because you get to see the young guys grow. Ultimately, as they get more competent, then it lessens the, uh, the workload for yourself. Exactly. So it's a win-win. So what kind of projects were you being exposed to at this time? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> so I started off uh, in the London office with ExxonMobil, and that was in a central technology group, and they were essentially um, the think tank, almost acting like consultants, if you like, for assets in Europe and area that I was working on was UK and uh, Norway, uh, North Sea assets. Mm -hmm. So I spent some time there. Shortly after I arrived, though, that group got disbanded, um, got centralized in Houston. And the All roads lead to Houston, man. It did. For ExxonMobil, it does, yeah. <laughs> so I then moved uh, in the development company, then came into London. I worked some Russian assets for a while when ExxonMobil was Ooh, trying what to get was that into like? Russia. Well, that was, there were no real assets that ExxonMobil had that we were working. It was more doing screening studies okay. to evaluate assets that ExxonMobil would like to have gotten a piece of. At that time, uh, they were very close to a merger with uh, Yukos. Okay. This was right before the, um, the CEO of um, Yukos, Kordakovsky, got put in, uh, put in jail, got in trouble for... Um, for something, and, and anyway, the oil uh, field corruption, of course. No comment. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to. But uh, anyway, that that deal fell apart, and and very quickly that that organization got disbanded. And at that time, I got moved across over to Houston. Okay. Um, and that was into the West Africa uh, asset group, working Deepwater Angola. That's um, awesome. And that was an awesome experience because these were discovered. Uh, undeveloped fields that we were essentially figuring out the development plans mm -hmm. for and looking at how we were going to bring these fields on. So we were involved in the detailed planning for the well placement plans and uh, and then bringing these, uh, these fields on. So we were responsible for first oil and then the stewardship of that development plan that we'd put together for at least the first year or two to ensure it was fit for purpose um, before the assets were then handed over to the uh, production company. That is so cool. Yeah. Oh my God, that is a lot of data. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And these were world-class assets with amazingly rich data sets. So you had, you ended up with simulation models that had been conditioned by the seismic volumes. Yeah. Everything was tying together from, the, you know, the geophysical data all the way through to the, you know, the net pay maps in the in the, in the simulation model. So you could sit there and, and really plan wells in a simulation model and where you're hitting the sweet spot in the simulation model, that's going to tie all the way back to the seismic. Yeah. And they then tune it up, and, and, and then you'd see these wells get drilled. It was an incredible experience. I mean, I, I was still only 10 years into my career at this stage. This is sort of 2006, 2007, and I had no idea before coming over to Houston that my work at that level of experience was going to be having such a material impact but it yeah, really was. Yeah. It really was. After uh, ExxonMobil, how did you move into BP? So um, I was over with Exxon for f uh, in Houston for five years. After that, the, uh, the visa expired and it was time to go home. This is now we're talking 2011. But back home in the UK, the UK operation, a lot of their assets, uh, ExxonMobil had um, divested those 
Yeah. And the London office had moved um, just outside of London to Leatherhead, um, which is just south. Um, there really wasn't much... You have to give us a geography lesson. Yeah, it's, it's kind of um, heading south, sort of towards Gatwick Airport from central London. <laughs> sort of halfway to Gatwick Airport from the center, center of town. Okay, there you um, go. Yeah. And uh, so, that, so and that office is still there today. The, my reason for moving on from it is there really wasn't a lot of reservoir engineering going on there. So I wasn't really happy about remaining in the, in the groups that... Uh, that were available for me to work in there. Mm-hmm. Um, they were trying to move me more into a sort of a development planning um, type role where you were moving away from the technical, yeah. um, not really doing any more reservoir engineering, and I didn't feel ready to do that just yet. Okay. Um, and the other thing that kind of weighed in on my decision to leave ExxonMobil was our last year in the States um, as we were running up against the visa clock and the company was figuring out where to move me next. I realized just how little control you have when working for a large player like that over where you are going to be living and working. Mm-hmm. So even though I eventually got back to my, my home base, that wasn't the first offer they gave me. They offered me other places that we don't need to go into the details, but they weren't places I was prepared to go. And I turned <laughs> them down and I thought, well, we're at a high oil price environment right now, so they'll accept me giving them a no. But what if I'm 15, 20 years into a final salary pension? and the oil price is low and they're offering me some horrible location I don't want to go to and uh, yeah they kind of own me and I've, and I've got to take whatever they give me and uh, I just really with just looking to the future I was thinking I don't want to be that person I don't want to be owned in that way yeah for me where you choose to live is such a personal decision and I don't want um, well, it helps build your character. And yeah, it's like, where and you want to go next? Exactly. So I, I don't want a big corporate telling me where I'm going to be living. I, I want to be making those decisions myself. So it was in 2011 anyway when it really was an opportunity-rich industry worldwide. But mm-hmm. in London, there was a lot going on. And uh, I, I made the decision then to go independent and, and become a consultant. Yeah. yeah so how's well, that been working out? So that, that has been a, yeah, that's been a, a very interesting and, and, and rich journey. Um, so my first client was um, BP in London, and I was assigned to the Iraq project. So I brought in as a, a lead reservoir engineer um, working the Rumela project. That is um, awesome. Yeah, it was... It, Again, a new location, awesome exposure, conventional assets. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's the f- what the oil field provides. And, and my first experience of working onshore, Middle East, mega fields. Yeah, you know, mega talk- fields. Yeah, you're talking <laughs> billions of barrels of reserves exactly. at the time. The, the um, When I joined the project, um, it was producing about a million barrels a day of oil. Whoa. And BP's aspiration was to, uh, over time build that plateau rate up to 2.8 million. So we're talking big, big stuff. Yeah. Um, so I was part of the uh, um, part of the workforce brought in to essentially do the field studies to figure out what could be done. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be a development reservoir engineer? The, the technical skill sets are not happening, and they are not actually thinking through the science behind the decline. So that's possibly a symptom of the, the downturn we've experienced in that the companies don't want to invest in... Um, developing the technical skill sets and paying the money to carry out those more in-depth technical studies, Mm -hmm. possibly. Of course, there are instances where DCA will work for you just fine, but for the type of developments I've been working, certainly is is not good enough. Exactly. You've got a rich data set there, and the beauty of a simulation model is it uh, essentially a depository for all of that data. The reservoir engineer's job is to make sure that your data sets are consistent and making sense 
and the model is your best science. Mm -hmm. And then once you've achieved that and got it calibrated to, to historical um, production information and, and, and all the data there, um, you've got the best tool possible for you to, to move forward with run predictions and optimize your developments. So you spoke about the assets that you've looked at, mostly true conventional assets. Yeah. That's something that we don't see a lot of in the lower 48, especially in the last 12 years. Right. So can you talk to us about how the developments of the shell craze that has happened throughout West Texas has affected international oil and honestly some of the differences you've seen from you know just your tenure in industry yeah so that's a that, that's a great question I mean so I've being based in primarily in the in the UK I haven't worked much of that acreage in, on the unconventional side they but didn't the, send you to West Texas yet th that's right, that's right. <laughs> but uh, the one thing I think none of us can, uh, can escape from is the fact that, that just how successful that shale oil boom was and then the impact it had in 2015 with, with the, uh, the crash of the oil price. And it certainly stabilized the oil price since then, I think. Um, hopefully we're gonna hang in that sort of 50 to, 50 to $70 range, because um, that, that, that's a healthy range. So conventional assets, they don't, uh, there, there's a, new, a different type of evaluation necessary for them. It, it tends to be more mechanical, more, more technical, I mean, in terms of skill set analysis. So yeah. what are some of your secret sauces? How do you sort of evaluate an asset when you come in? What are you looking for? Are there any rules of thumb that you've picked up along the way that you can share with us? Okay, I'm uh, just trying to think of a think of a good. My, I mean, so coming from the modeling aspect, my favorite thing to do is to use models to demonstrate that the, that the development plan that you're taking forward is the right one. And I'm saying that in quotes. All models are wrong, and some are useful. Sometimes. Correct. Right. <laughs> so it's all about using your models to run a range of scenarios. Running those scenarios while the the ones that you think have a fighting chance of looking attractive, running those through economics and then letting the economics of the project drive what that right yeah. answer is. I think the other great thing that we can use models for, of course, is to reflect our uncertainty ranges. Yeah. Because the model's always wrong, as you just said. Oil and gas business is about living with uncertainty. Modeling, in my mind, is a great, great skill set that we use to essentially reduce that uncertainty range and, and, and uh help us understand it better. What are your applications of risk analysis? Like, are you only keeping it on the economics? Are you looking at it in terms of a porosity permeability evaluation? What What are you looking for? Where do you feel the most risk typically lies? Well, I mean, I guess that that's asset dependent, but in a in a true uncertainty study, I mean, you're, uh, that's a full-on exercise for, for a lot of the assets I've, I've worked on out there. And you'll define uncertainty ranges for static and dynamic parameters okay. and look at a, a full range of scenarios there. And if you've got the time to do it, you'll eventually end up with a full sort of P10 to P90 range yeah. of, of, of recoverable. And then depending on the, uh, the business model, you know, you'll then go away and, and use, those, uh, use those profiles accordingly. What do you think is the tone of international oil right now? And I say international oil because I'm typically lower 48. Oil here affects oil there. So yeah. what what are you seeing across the spectrum from the outside of the tunnel vision that we tend to get? Right. I think what I'm seeing post-2015 now is a gradual return to investment. 
opportunities are starting to come up once again. And the first area outside of the U.S. that, that I, I would say where we're, where we're seeing that uptick is in the Middle East. Interesting. Yeah. So you see the, uh, the Saudis, Qatar Petroleum, KOC, they're all looking for people again. They're all looking for people, so they're bringing yeah. people. Is there? Do you think that that option for international travel for new grads is going to be there like it used to be? Because currently, getting an international position is probably one of the hardest things to do. Yeah. So these are typically the vacancies that I'm talking about that I'm noticing there are a lot more of now. Are they're not graduate positions? They're yeah. looking for experienced people with kind of 15 years plus, maybe 20 years plus. A lot do of they actually have those anymore? We've um, got such gaps in our industry. Yeah. So I mean, so I came in in the in the late 90s. So I'm what am I now? I'm looking at yeah, a little over 20 years. Um, yeah, there's not many people like me around. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, there's not. How do we encourage people to get back into industry with these types of opportunities? Is it worth being in this industry? I mean. It's, it's a hard decision to make and you have to be passionate about it, but is it, does it really pay off if you hold through the downturns? So this is the, and that's the million dollar question. Everyone's saying when this comes back, it's gonna be great for those of us that survived it. I don't wanna predict anything right now. <laughs> I, I really don't. I mean, I, I really do hope so, obviously, but that's a, that's a selfish hope, I guess. I think it's gotta be an individual's passion that drives that decision. Only they'll know if they're meant to be doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, if the passion's not there, then the downturn is the perfect excuse for those uh, those individuals to go off and, and pursue something else that they feel more passionate about. Well, we're seeing more industry transferable skill sets if yeah. that, or industry across industry transferable skill sets. I mean, it's easy, like you said, from the chemical to come up to the upstream, but from a petroleum's perspective, can we go down to the downstream? I'm not sure how transferable those skills are. You could try. You could take a look at it, right? I mean, certainly um, people that have got chemical engineering degrees, um, you could look at it. And But it would probably be starting on a lower pay grade, and that, that's the other part of it. That Well, that's happening across the board right now. This is yeah. not the six-figure graduate entry industry that it used to be. Yeah. I mean, you just have to ebb and flow. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And that's the... And that's been the, the challenge for people that, you know, up to 2015, people have built a life and a material expectation of that, or the career they're having. And um, yeah, 2015 is it to reset a lot of expe expectations for mm -hmm. a lot of people, make people rethink. Absolutely. Hess, Exxon, BP, these are huge names. Yeah. And they are considered, at least from my perspective, my limited perspective, these are like the big names in industry. Yeah. What were the cultural differences you were seeing? Who was getting it right? How were we getting more to an integrated team as opposed to the siloed, you are only this type of engineer? What sort of evolutions did you see throughout these companies? Okay, um, so I'm going to start with uh, Exxon. It's hard to get into Exxon. Yeah, and, and when I look back, I think it's one of the most professional and best-run companies I've ever experienced. Why um, is that? The caliber of the people, um, the thought that's gone into the processes and the way they manage themselves, the quality of the training that was given, the quality of the people that you learn from. Mm -hmm. So I did nine and a half years there and it has set me for the rest of my career. It gave me that confidence to um, go independent mm -hmm. in 2011, even though that, that was a big decision to, to step away, but it did give me that confidence. And what I've noticed since then is that people notice the brand on the CV and yeah, it, there's, a, there's a comfort feeling to it for anyone who deals with you. And as a consultant, that's a great piece of marketing mm -hmm. 
But moving from there to BP, you just learn, I've learned different things. They approach um, reservoir engineering in a different way. Um, in what capacity? So on the, on the modeling side, they, they'll just use vendor software and they don't science their models as much as, as Exxon did. And they use different tools to account for some of the shortfalls of their, um, some of the approaches they take, in my view. But the, the interesting thing was, as a consultant, because I've now wo- worked across this, this suite of companies, moving on from BP, of course, to other um, companies such as Sasol, Premier Oil, um, Glencore, and everywhere you go, you'll learn something different about the way the, you know, the client likes things to be done. You yeah. always bring your own flavor to what you're doing. But I found that every project I work, I take away a new learning. Yeah. And it develops that kind of broad-minded view of how best to um, carry out the field studies that we do. From all of your exposure, what do you think is the best management practice? What did you see being done in terms of leadership that you liked? What did you not like? What do you think that there's opportunity to improve on? Everyone's trying to ascend the ranks and unfortunately because of the age and generation gaps we have in industry, people are being put into management positions faster than their technical skill set tends to allow sometimes. Just thinking about the cultural differences actually between the companies that I've seen and emphasis on various qualities if you like. A big thing for me that I've noticed that varies a lot from company to company is safety culture. Safety culture. And that's a big word in the industry or it certainly should be. It's one of the most important parts of how any company carries out its business. ExxonMobil was exemplary. So moving on from there and their culture, when I moved over to BP, um, and I joined BP shortly after Macondo. Now I wasn't offshore, but I noticed on the London-based site where I was working, just it was less secure. Hmm. You know? So ExxonMobil, when you walk into a typical office location, you've probably got at least two barriers or, th- or three barriers, security barriers, I mean, before you can get onto the floor where you're working. Oh, and, it's run and like a military. Yeah, I mean, you've got proper security and no one's getting in there without, you know, a proper pass. Yeah. BP, in contrast, um, you know, I would take a lunch break sometimes, work in there, go out at lunchtime, come back. Maybe the, the security systems for the barriers were down and the barriers were just open and people were just walking in and out. And I just thought this was within the first couple of weeks I was there that I noticed that and I thought, wow, you know, that would never happen at ExxonMobil. Even um, in the States? Because um, that seems to be an international. The security thing in terms of like workplace security tends to be international because of some of the locations that are being worked. So this was actually Sunbury in, in, in the UK um, that, I'm, that I'm referring to. And, so uh, just as safe as Mississippi. <laughs> I mean, you know, and then occasionally they'd report that there'd been thefts of laptops and things like that and you just oh think well you know yeah because anybody can yeah. walk in and out and uh, exactly. get onto it and there were no additional once you were through those first set of barriers there I don't think there were any additional barriers to get onto the floor where I was working the Iraq project anyway huh. so yeah the, culturally seeing that that spectrum of uh, safety culture um, that's been quite a, an eye-opener for me what about your perception on the cleanliness of our industry? There tends to be, especially this new decade, and we're going through an election cycle, there is this crazy push for environmentalism. But I would argue that the oil and gas industry itself has been an environmental steward. We didn't start out well. We fixed our problems. We're continuing to improve. What's the international perception of oil and gas as a steward of the people? So and, uh, I think you're right. I think we're always picked on as the bad guy because ultimately we are, our product is something that, you know, will create greenhouse gases. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And you're seeing some of these bigger companies pro- project yeah. this green veil when we've been green. Yeah, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, the reality is the world is still running on oil and we need oil. And I think oil companies, well, certainly the places where I've worked, they're doing the best job they can to do that as cleanly as possible. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, we're just an easy target in my mind. So, yeah. I mean, that, that will keep us honest and keep us as, as, as clean as we can be. But. It's kept us very honest. Yeah. And I, I, for one, am proud to be oil and gas because of the environmental strides yeah. that we've made. Yeah. What do you think about the transfer of information in the lower 48? And honestly, just kind of across the world, everyone started with the intention of keeping data close to chest. We do not want to be chased by our competitors. We do not want to share data. And as we become, as we get further and further along in our the history of our industry, we are understanding the importance of shared data and mm-hmm. how to do that successfully so that everyone thrives and, you know, high tides raise all boats, so to speak. Yeah. But there's still this need for confidentiality. What are you seeing internationally in terms of data management? Data sharing, certainly in the larger companies where I've worked, they've got rich data sets from which to um, base their evaluations. I've heard that they don't tend to share even between teams, though. That's a fair comment, and you typically need somebody in a functional role who's going to be making sure that asset teams talk to one another, or the functional managers, I mean, that's their role. They're sitting in on reviews of all the assets that the companies are looking at, and where they see similarities or analogous characteristics, that's an important role to make sure that business units are talking to one another. Mm-hmm. Where the challenge comes in is when you're dealing with smaller operators and yeah, then, then they're just relying on public domain data and yeah. organizations like the SPE from which to make their judgments and that's certainly more of a challenge, yeah. Well, it's a challenge we need to figure out, especially with automation, machine learning, and this big data push, which honestly, what does that even mean anymore? <laughs> Let's go back to some of your reservoir experiences in terms of simulation. One of the reasons I wanted to chat with you so much is because of your simulation background, your technical reservoir background. I'm sure you have seen the pushes on LinkedIn, other forms of social media saying that the subsurface evaluation teams, the geosciences to the reservoir engineer are not as necessary as they used to be back in time. I would completely disagree with this statement. I think that the money behind our industry is getting to the point where they need a stronger push for the sciences. And with your simulation background, you have done seismic two simulation from speaking to completions engineers, working with geomechanists, everything, in order to come up with a functional reservoir model that actually has uh, less risk associated with yeah. it. So what are you seeing in terms of this movement? What do you think the importance of the subsurface brings to the table these days, the importance of the science? Because we're trying to remove the science when I would argue we need more of it. Yeah, I think the danger is if you remove the science and, and throw the modeling out the door, you're potentially going to be walking away from opportunities because you're, um, you're, you're flying blind. You know, mm-hmm. like If you're not developing a tool... Um, that the whole team can get around and, and plan a development, um, you're going to miss something. You're going to miss an opportunity. Um, if I've learned anything from modeling studies is um, be prepared for the unexpected. Exactly. You learn something. It's not... You might not the, like the, what the, you just learned. <laughs> exactly. The mindset that says, oh, we don't need to do that, are the people that are going into a modeling study thinking, 
I'm just going to cre uh, create a model that gives me the answer that I already know. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time, of course, there are instances where that happens, but a lot of the time you learn something new. It will show you the importance of going and getting a piece of data that mm -hmm. you didn't think about getting in order to reduce that uncertainty and get a better handle on you know, what your profile is going to be. And obviously that's going to inform so many things. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the, that's the risk of throwing the science out the door is you're going to miss something and you're going to miss something important. And then it comes back to bite you later. How do we successfully train reservoirs such as myself? I've been doing this for four years now. I have modeling exposure and I've been on technical teams yeah. as opposed to just pure, you know, drill baby drill. How do we ensure that someone like me is able to get the proper exposure for modeling techniques to assume the background and the CV that you have? It's all about getting exposure to the projects first mm -hmm. and foremost and that then leads on to it's all about companies investing enough again and staffing up the teams to do the science to do the studies um, that's the only way you get, you're going to get the experience like I said you can go on training courses you can read books you can talk to people who have done it but the only real way to learn it is to do it mm -hmm. in practice and at the moment, it seems, if you're wanting to get that kind of experience, you've, you're going to have to be flexible with where you live and where you travel to. Exactly. Um, I mean, I would love to travel internationally, but nobody's offered me a damn job yet. So Australia, you need to get on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what are you looking for in younger reservoir engineers and younger engineers in general? What sort of personalities, what sort of exposure, what questions are you asking to make sure that they're the right fit for your team? Or honestly, just kind of sizing them up when you come into a consulting role to see what their level of technical skill set actually is. Uh, it's a good question. Um, it's a question for it, me. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think I'm looking for a passion and an interest in, in the subject, um, first and foremost. Because if, if that's there, then you're naturally going to have the inquisitive mind that's going to take you down in order to better understand. If that's not there, if the interest isn't there, you're just going to be looking to get the get the work done as quickly as possible and, and, and things get missed. That's when um, things get very missed. That's when um, you know, you're not putting your full thought into it and um, in the worst case scenario, you could be doing it totally wrong. Mm -hmm. And then you just end up with a, a model that's, um, that's wrong and you know, the old saying, right? Garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. And you can spend an awful lot of time developing what's essentially a useless tool that then needs to be pulled apart and, and, and rebuilt with some oversight. Mm -hmm. um, so you spoke about uh, small operators, you know, just having the exposure to public data, trying to do as much as they can with as little as they have. What benefits do, do modeling scenarios bring to them as well as to the majors? We understand that majors are trying to do full-scale basin models and yeah. really get into the meat of it, and they have the resources to do so. But I would say that some of the best learnings will come from some of the smaller guys because they honestly, jack-of-all-trades can be an awesome toolbox. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the, the, the same... Um, yeah, the same advantage that uh, the modeling approach would give an asset team in a major, um, you're also going to get that same advantage in a in a in a smaller company, mm -hmm. enabling them to see the 
the range of, or, or better understand the range of uncertainty around what they're doing and potentially um, uh, get them asking the right questions and mm -hmm. get them acquiring the, the right data to help them further reduce their, mm -hmm. their range of uncertainty. Um, so it wouldn't vary from a large company to a small one, but what the large company is going to have is potentially um, more defined processes for how to get it right first time or, you know, get it right more more efficiently Yeah. Um, because they've been down that path so many times before. Um, so when a small guy tells me that they uh, we don't do modeling, we can't we can't afford it, or we don't see any value in it, <laughs> what would be your pushback if you've heard that? It really has to be asset dependent. Asset um, dependent. Yeah, there's there's not a one size fit, fits all answer there. Ah. Um, I'm afraid. Oh my god, I'm, I need some of these answers, man. Um, so, from your experience, what are some of the best peaks, or what are or, some or of the... No, no, let me just sorry, okay, chime back in on that one. Um, one way, if they would be open to giving you the data, um, and they haven't built a model yet, you get on and build one, um, and see what you learn, see what their current development plan is, and then if you've managed to come up with a better answer that's more um, robust and comprehensive and... and backed up more comprehensively with the range of field data that was available to them, um, then that's the way to showcase and, and, and get your foot in the door, right? Yeah. Um, that, 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 that's around. how you sell it, right? Um, otherwise, you're asking them to spend money on something that they've already told you that they don't really want. Exactly. What are your biggest uh, recognitions of pits in modeling? What would you, what advice would you give someone? They're coming to you from a consulting role. They're, you're having to do a quick, a quick look to sort of, I guess, gain business. What are the pits you tell them to keep their eye out for to be a good steward to your potential clients? Okay, I mean, one of the things that uh, an easy one to pick on is um, when um, people have gone through a model calibration process and they've been in a time crunch and uh, a p potentially you end up with a, a model that's been calibrated in a contrived way. And by that I mean that it's, um, it's highly likely it's not um, a good representation of what's down hole. The team hasn't had long enough or they haven't applied the right or, or got the right expertise mm -hmm. in to help them. Uh, get informed and uh, yeah I'm used to as a consultant I've seen a lot of bad models come my way over the years mm -hmm. where people have gone through a history matching exercise and well, just people seem to get really excited about how many grid blocks are in there and it's like dude it yeah. doesn't matter how many at some point it's the data behind it that's right and and as long as the model's running in a reasonable time frame and it's uh, practical from a business perspective you can move on from that and then it's about mm -hmm. the uh, the science that you're putting into the model exactly. and getting back to what I said earlier about making sure that the model is um, demonstrates consistency across all of the data sets that you're bringing into it. Um, and uh, yeah, people have handed me a lot of models over the years with contrived poor matches and we've had to essentially undo those and, exactly. and, and redo them. Honestly, I think any model that's ever handed to me, I don't care how big you think it is, if you can't justify the data that's gone into it, yeah. then it doesn't matter how great and pretty and awesome it looks on pictures. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. What's your favorite res layer resolution? Layer resolution. 
Uh, I ask everyone this one. (laughs) It it has to be asset specific because it all depends on the thickness of your reservoir and how heterogeneous it is. Come on, seven to ten feet. That's the best. I mean, the the last uh, major modeling study I was involved in was a a very thin oil rim with a large gas cap overlaying on top of it. And we were down at, um, I think, 50 centimeter layering. Um, (gasps) You were not. Yeah, because the whole, the, the oil rim was only about eight meters, eight to 10 meters thick. Wow. Um, but that, and then you'll go into uh, something like the, you know, the Iraq Mumela project where you've got, I, I can't remember the thickness of that formation, but yeah, layers of several meters thick. But the other thing to bear in mind here is you have to let the geology drive yes. your layering design. You cannot so replace a good geologist. So if you've got large blocky parts of your stratigraphy, those can have coarser layers in them. But then if you've got thin thief zones that are, continuous and, and, and significant enough to warrant um, layering in as, as part of that overall architecture, then you may need to have some thinner layers in there too. Mm-hmm. So it's sometimes a uniform layering throughout is not the right answer. I like that. Um, so what is your advice for someone, let's say me, almost five years of experience. What is your advice for someone like me who's looking to get into a more international perspective? Because again, we become shale centric and we don't have the exposure or the foundation of conventional assets. And that is something I would argue that every single petroleum and chemical engineer interested in upstream should have a foundation of. And that's how you you come to the table and you get the interview. So what is your advice for someone looking to expand their work outside of their their bubble? Okay, so um, I was at exactly the same point you are <laughs> when I moved to ExxonMobil. So that would be my advice to you. I would say if you truly are passionate about gaining an international exposure to assets, learning reservoir engineering um, from the ground up properly by some of the best people at, at the world in it, frankly. Um, They're at Exxon. Go and apply to ExxonMobil. That's amazing. That that would be my advice. That was my They're experience. They're going to love you when they hear this. And it worked well for me. Maybe Some of the best guys I work with and for are, are still there. So. Well, heck, after hearing this, maybe their CEO will join my podcast. So, Ben, thank you so much for taking the time today. You've provided such value. I love this international perspective. I love this conventional perspective. It's something that we don't get a lot of exposure to, and I think it's something that every person in the oil field should have in their arsenal and be able to speak about the international effects of the oil field because we are not limited to the lower 48, and it's such a huge world, yet we are such a small industry. So, again, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been freaking awesome. You are very welcome. brought you any sort of value, go online, rate, review, subscribe. Also, if you have any topics or influencers you would like us to feature, you can get in touch with us by Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or the website at www.thecrudeaudacity.com. Thanks so much for your engagement, and until next week, give them hell.